tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. Tonight, we escape to a sunken city, which lies with its fabulous treasure chests at the bottom of the sea, and to the lust for gold of a crew of men who were willing to die or to kill. This is the opening of the Escape episode entitled Port Royal, which was suggested by a chapter from Harry Riesberg's book, I Dive for Treasure, from 1942. Like Red Forest, Port Royal has an anti-hero protagonist, and like many later episodes of the series, it depicts a quest for treasure. Escape's treasure tales often follow a pattern that the scholar Franco Moretti describes as the spatial logic of colonialism. Adventures often begin at a coastal port and then move into the interior in search of some fantastic treasure, and the general pattern is to penetrate, seize, and then leave. The treasure that beckons heroes in these adventures usually has a kind of fairy tale quality to it that substitutes for the actual materials that were being plundered from colonial regions. Moretti writes that the bloody profits of the colonial adventure are sublimated into glittering, clean stones, diamonds if possible. Treasure tales like these have been an enduring aspect of Western pop culture, from King Solomon's Mines to Indiana Jones. But these narratives took a markedly pessimistic turn during the post-war era. Take, for example, John Huston's classic film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, from 1948. The story concerns two down-and-out Americans who joined forces with a prospector named Howard to search for gold in central Mexico. They strike it rich. <laughs> you're so dumb, you don't even see the riches you're treading on with your own feet. <laughs> but one of the prospectors, Fred Dobbs, played by Humphrey Bogart, becomes increasingly unstable and paranoid, and he turns on his companions and takes the gold for himself. Come on, stand up and take it like a man. Come on, get up! In the film's famous conclusion, Dobbs is killed by bandits who mistake the bags of gold for sand, dumping their hard-earned treasure on the ground where it's blown away by the desert wind. 
The treasure of the Sierra Madre shows the social costs of an obsessive pursuit of wealth and also the ecological costs. The environmental overtones of the film are given voice by the character of Howard, who tells Curtin and Dobbs that they can't leave the site of their mining operation until they put the mountain back in shape. It's taken another week to break down the mine and put the mountain back in shape. Do what to the mountain? Make her appear like she was before we came. I don't get it. We wounded this mountain. It's our duty to close her wounds. The least we can do to show our gratitude for all the wealth she's given us. At the film's conclusion, when Curtin and Howard discover that their gold has been carried away by the wind, Howard lets loose with an unforgettable gale of laughter. Howard's ability to think like a mountain and his awareness of the comic futility of the obsessive pursuit of wealth make the movie legible as an early critique of the waste, destruction, and betrayal inherent in the post-war acceleration in consumption and resource extraction that characterizes the Anthropocene. At the same time, the film is a great example of the pessimistic turn in post-war treasure tales. It transforms the spatial logic of colonial romance from penetrate, seize, and leave to penetrate, seize, and self-destruct. Some of Escape's treasure tales explore similar terrain. Take Bloodbath, the story of five men who travel to the jungles of South America in search of uranium. After days hacking through the Andes jungle, they discover the richest load of uranium ore known to man. Here goes. Switch on. Holy cow. Good. Good. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Come on. The plan is to split the profits five ways, but betrayal is never far away in these post-war treasure tales, and three members of the party, including the narrator, Harris, voiced by the great Vincent Price, wake up to discover that their compatriots have taken the mules and left them to die in the jungle. Harris and his two comrades pursue the double-crossers, and after several days, they find one of the mules and, a little further down the trail, the body of one of their betrayers shot in the back. Soon they reach the river, arriving just in time to see their former partner pulling away in the boat that's their only means of escape. He staggered dizzily about the cockpit, trying to start the engine. He was laughing, and he was so weak that he could barely spin the flywheel to the kicker. He slipped! Ah, good Lord, he's in the water! The fish, the piranhas! Oh, they got him, they got him! I ain't gonna look at this! One moment we saw him swimming weakly, his large, fever-ridden eyes turned imploringly toward us, and the next moment he was gone, leaving only a large red churning patch on the water. The boat drifts downstream, coming to rest on the other side of the river. Oh. 
the three remaining men can't cross the shallow water because of the piranhas and electric eels, and the single remaining mule is too weak to carry all the men at once. They decide to take turns riding the mule, carrying a rope to guide the animal back to the next man. But as soon as the first partner begins his crossing, he cuts the rope, shouting, Electric eels attack the mule's leg, and it rears up, causing the rider to fall into the water and be promptly dispatched by the piranhas. The mule, freed of weems, made the shore and vanished into the jungle. We turned away. No man could watch what was happening to weems and retain his sanity. After a long night on the sandbar, Hesse gets an idea. Yeah. See see that vine hanging down from the big tree? It's over the water and it must be 15 feet up. Yeah, yeah, but if you were on it, you could do a Tarzan to the shore. The rope? That's right. One guy gets on the other's shoulders to swing over to get the start, see? Then when he gets to shore, he fastens a rock and swings the rope back to the other. After much effort, Hesse makes it to the other side. But instead of returning the rope as planned, he says... Sorry! He's stood there laughing at me and shaking his head slowly. But uh, above him, just over his head, was another vine, thick and mottled, and it was moving. Look out, Hess! Hess! <laughs> he didn't understand or didn't hear me. Just stood there smiling and shaking his head. The boa constrictor dropped heavily and accurately a thrashing tangle of scaly muscles. <laughs> Just as he has given up all hope, Harris notices a slight shift in the river's current. And now new sand from some sunken bar was beginning to pile up between me and the shore, grain by grain, rib by rib. I watched this. And I watched. And I watched. And it... Five o'clock that afternoon, I walked ashore to the lawn and didn't even get my feet wet. The episode ends with Harris speaking directly to the listener. It's nice where I live. Quiet little streets, nice people, nice kids, nice country, peaceful, nice peace. I know where there's enough uranium to blow it all to hell. Want it? <laughs> Just go up the river. <laughs> up the river, it's, uh, it's for the taking. Ask Dumont and Obi and Weems and Hess. A trillion bucks worth. Enough to give the whole world a bloodbath. Yourself included. <laughs> Bloodbath shows the cynical turn in post-war adventures, with the quest for treasure now serving as the vehicle for a broader social critique. What spurred this change in the tone of adventure? Maybe an era of decolonization made it impossible to sustain colonial fantasies. Maybe Cold War anti-communism meant that loyalties were less certain. 
and maybe anxiety about nuclear weapons made the treasure at the end of the trail seem a little less clean. Notice how the fairy tale treasure in Bloodbath is not diamonds, but uranium. I want to amplify the environmental frequencies of these dark post-war treasure tales. For one thing, they transpose the story of resource extraction into a minor key. And that's an important move as we orient ourselves to an Anthropocene epoch that's been brought about by the extraction and consumption of fossil fuels. The years after World War II saw the fossil economy reach full maturity with the rise of car culture and the increased exploitation of oil. Escape is bound up in that moment, and Bloodbath is one of about a dozen episodes of the show that were sponsored by the Richfield Oil Company. If you want a motor that runs quiet as a whisper, if you want pickup and power to spare, try Richfield gasoline with xylene. Drive in where you see the Richfield Eagle on the cream and blue pumps. And now we return you to Escape. When we recognize that the global search for fossil fuel reserves was the quintessential treasure hunt of recent history, then the post-war narrative template of penetrate, seize, and self-destruct that we hear in a story like Bloodbath starts to have eco-critical as well as post-colonial implications. Port Royal is another one of Escape's dark treasure tales, but with the additional twist that the loot is underwater. There were a lot of oceanic media productions being made in the 1950s. Undersea horror movies. Science couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon. Documentaries by Jacques Cousteau. Calypso is en route to a Red Sea island where we hope to find sharks and adventure films like Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef. Now for the first time, CinemaScope's amazing anamorphic lens engulfs you in the panoramic range of an underwater world you have never been part of before. Oceanic themes could be found on network radio as well. And besides Port Royal, Escape produced four episodes about deep sea divers. Slow it was. I sunk down through that green water. The only sound was the air bubbling out of the helmet there. Full five minutes or more it took to sink that 20 fathom. Them ghostly sea ferns went slithering past like snakes. And big purple and red clumps of jagged coral. And the light from the surface getting dimmer and dimmer. And several that take place in submarines. Fire! Underwater adventures are great for audio drama because they offer so many opportunities for distinctive sound design. Port Royal begins in New York City in the apartment of Danny Quinn. Quinn gets a visit from a friend named Carl. Hey, Danny, it's Carl. It ain't locked. Carl's just heard an interesting lecture by a deep-sea diver named Fletcher Travis. 
Well, it's a sunken city down near Jamaica. The island, not the track. And uh, they call it uh, Port Royal. It's warehouses down there with gold by the ton. Travis was all ready with a boat to go down after it, leaving tomorrow. Anyway, he holds up this chart and says, this is the pass key to get him in. It's something like that. So I tail him back to the hotel. I make his room number and go in while he's eating his dinner. Now, we got this chart. That's the key. Then we buy a boat, get ourselves a diver of our own, and we go after this haul ourselves. You know, you got something, Carl. Hey, behind you in the dresser, top drawer. See if my Siemens papers are there. Okay, Danny, okay. Uh, uh, where are they? I don't see them. Right in the back. Huh? There! Oh. You little jerk. This opening scene establishes Danny Quinn as an anti-hero protagonist and works to get the adventure rolling. Now we know what the fairy tale treasure is that Quinn will be pursuing for the rest of the show. But there are hidden depths to the story if we slow down and take a closer look at some of the concrete details to be found in Carl's information. The lecture that Carl heard is based on accounts of the actual Port Royal, a city built on the tip of a sandy harbor near present-day Kingston. Founded by the Spanish in the 1500s, it became an English settlement in 1655. And as Jamaica became a central hub in the trade in sugarcane, Port Royal's population grew, including many enslaved Africans. So Port Royal, the historical place, was a node in the network of transatlantic shipping, slave labor, and plantation production. The fairy tale sunken treasure of Port Royal might be associated with romantic tales of pirate buccaneers, but it derives from the human misery and ecological devastation of the plantation system. As we learned in episode two of my podcast, Some eco-critics have suggested that it would be more accurate to say that the epoch that we're living in begins with the plantation system and should be called the Plantationocene rather than a post-war origin for the Anthropocene. The story Port Royal broadcast on Escape in 1950 brings these different historical perspectives into dialogue. There's also a geological or planetary dimension to the Port Royal story. Port Royal is a sunken city because on June 7, 1692, it was struck by an earthquake that was one of the great disasters of the early modern world. The city had been built on a sandy foundation, so it was particularly vulnerable to earthquakes. And when this one struck, houses cracked and whole streets sank into the water. About 4,000 people died from the earthquake and the tidal wave and epidemics that followed it. So we should keep in mind as we descend into the waters around Port Royal that we might be feeling the pull of multiple currents and we might find a lot more here than just sunken treasure. Quinn takes the chart that he's stolen from Carl and returns it to Fletcher Travis in exchange for a place on the expedition. Arriving off the coast of Jamaica, the ship is secured to a reef and Travis makes his first dive. 
Quinn talks to Travis on a radio intercom that links the diving suit to the ship, a narrative device that functions like parallel editing or deep focus cinematography to portray multiple planes of action. What's my depth now? Hold on, I'll get it. He wants his depth, Captain. Here comes 25 fathoms. Now. You're at 25 fathoms, Travis. Good. I can see coral now. Great formations of it stretching away from me. Buildings? The warehouses? Yes. Yes, buildings. Roofs, windows. There's a street. Yeah. Must be a street in front of me. There's storehouses. He's hit it. Storehouses. We've hit it. Do you hear that, mate? Hey, I heard. We've hit it. Now I'm on the bottom. Travis locates the storehouses in the sunken city and recovers a rotting chest containing gold coins. Over the next several days, the team amasses a huge fortune. You can probably anticipate what's going to happen next. Like Fred Dobbs and the treasure of the Sierra Madre and the uranium hunters in Bloodbath, it's not long before Quinn is overcome by greed and decides to double-cross his partners. Any hunk of dough looks three times smaller, but it's split three ways. Quinn plans to get a gun and overwhelm the captain and the mate while Travis is underwater. Then he'll escape with the gold on a lifeboat, leaving the ship to run against the reef. When Travis descends on his last dive, Quinn makes his move. I took the intercom set off my head. Matson and the mate had their heads together near the winch. Danny, where are you going? I... Uh, in to get a drink of water. Don't do it, Danny. Stay where you are. Hey, 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 what's... What the devil's the matter with you? What's a gun for? I haven't done anything. The gun is so you won't do anything. McGraw! I said... Cut the winch. Time to move. Get below and open the valves. I'll take care of Danny. Oh, no, you won't. Danny! The mate was able to open the valves of the ship, so it's sinking fast. And Quinn who can't swim, is horrified to discover that his gunfire has peppered the lifeboat with bullet holes. It's useless. No! 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 Quinn remembers Travis and brings him to the surface. There's no time to talk about it now, Danny. I can see you have plenty of trouble. Well, there wasn't much I could do but kill him. Naturally, Danny. All those chests going back to the bottom. How can you tell about guys like Maxon and McGraw? I don't know, Danny. Treasure hunting does strange things to people. Well, we're coming back after it, aren't we? I can raise some more dough. We aren't giving up, are we? I'm coming back, Danny. But you aren't. What's that supposed to mean? You left the intercom system open. I heard what you told McGraw before you killed him about your plans. That's too bad, Travis. Oh, no. Don't try it, Danny. Guns won't help you now. The lifeboat's gone. You're the sailor who can't swim, remember? You'd never make it by yourself, but I can get you ashore. And once I do, I've got to turn you in. So, you've got a choice. Come with me, or stay with the ship. Quinn has no choice but to go ashore with Travis and face the authorities. The episode ends as he watches the schooner sink, the gold falling back to the bottom of the ocean.
Port Royal is a pretty formulaic adventure yarn and a fairly standard example of the post-war trope of the treasure hunt gone wrong. Adding concrete details about the actual history of Port Royal adds dimension to the story and starts to make it resonate at multiple timescales. I want to draw out some of those resonances even more by bringing in a few other stories about Port Royal that were in circulation at the same time as the Escape broadcast. Escape based its script on Harry Reesberg's essay, Port Royal, The Ghost City Beneath the Sea, which was published in several major newspapers in 1940 and then reprinted in his 1942 book. But Reesberg's essay was only one example of a broader fascination with Port Royal at this time. There were also a number of archaeological expeditions to the ruins of the city during the 1950s, and Port Royal was the setting for two Hollywood films, both released in 1953. City Beneath the Sea, directed by Bud Bettacher, was based on the same Reesberg essay as Escape's Port Royal, but it tells a very different story. One about two deep-sea divers, played by Robert Ryan and Anthony Quinn, who are described as the best salvage men in the business. They're hired to recover gold bullion from a ship that rests on the site of the sunken city, and this rather thin treasure plot is fleshed out by romantic subplots involving both divers and a race between two rival expeditions to claim the loot. There are also a few scenes that attempt to depict the local culture of Jamaica. In one scene, Jamaican traditions are refracted through the depiction of Afro-American religious practices, referred to in the film as obia. Scenes like this were a prevalent racist trope of the era, allowing white audiences to revel in sensational images coded as primitive superstition. One of the salvage men spies on the hooded obia practitioners as they dance wildly around a fire. He's surprised to discover that the ritual is a response to his partner's dives into the sunken city. The leader of the ceremony offers a warning. Trespassers of our sacred rights, listen closely to my words. They are meant to warn you. Today, someone went down in the waters of Port Royal. He or you or no one else must ever go again. When these waters are disturbed, the bell of St. Iago de la Vega will ring and wake up the spirits of the dead, and they will rise against you and all people like you. You must stay away from the sunken city. Let the dead stay dead. The idea for the underwater church bell may have come from actual Jamaican folklore. Newspaper accounts claimed that some inhabitants of Jamaica believed that before a storm, the bell from the sunken cathedral could be heard tolling below the waves, a warning from the ghostly hands of the spirits of departed buccaneers. Now, I don't think that the Obia scene in City Beneath the Sea is meant to be an accurate depiction of Jamaican traditions. But despite its obvious distortions, it does add a voice to the film that speaks for local tradition and resists the plunder of its local heritage sites. In fact, the film shows that the warnings of the Obia man were more than empty superstition. In the film's climactic scenes, one of the salvage men recovers gold from the shipwreck in the heart of the sunken city. The weather suddenly shifts, 
Dark clouds gather in a violent storm, and an underwater earthquake rocks the ruins of the old city. Violent tremors cause the bell of the cathedral to ring. A rift opens on the undersea floor, causing the city to collapse, and the bell from the cathedral falls on the salvage man's airline. of the undersea earthquake stand apart from an otherwise pretty uninspired film. One review noted that while the whole enterprise gave the impression of having been slung together during lunchtime, its sole imaginative touch was the tolling of the underwater church bell, which the critic described as a startling, eerie symbol. Just what the tolling underwater bell symbolized, the critic didn't explain. If City Beneath the Sea gave the impression of having been slung together during lunchtime, RKO's Port Sinister may well have been completed over a coffee break. Promoted as a B-horror movie, the film's poster depicts a scantily clad woman being attacked by a giant crab. Are you all right? I guess I just lost my nerve. No wonder. Look at the size of those claws. I'll bet they'd slice your arm off just as neat as cutting butter. City Beneath the Sea and Port Sinister were both low-budget films that sought to cash in on the cycle of undersea movies without going to the trouble of actually shooting underwater. The diving sequences of City Beneath the Sea were shot on a studio set with air bubbles drawn in during post-production. Port Sinister removes the expense of underwater shooting through the clever narrative maneuver of raising the city out of the water. By doing so, it had the unintended effect of activating another set of sunken city narratives. The film begins with scientist and adventurer Tony Ferris asking the head of an unnamed institute to fund an expedition to Port Royal. For one of the strangest facts of this whole fabulous city beneath the sea is that Port Royal refuses to stay buried. What do you mean by that? For brief periods, Port Royal has twice re-emerged from the depths of the sea. The same natural forces that caused it to disappear, suddenly, with volcanic fury, vomited it out, dripping in the light of day. And on each occasion, before ships could land, this port sinister was again beneath the sea. For several years now, I have been pinpointing the activity of suboceanic geological structure of the Caribbean. Long dormant volcanic restlessness is now approaching new outbursts of undersea eruptions. The head of the Institute is convinced, saying, It's a fascinating venture. I suppose it's the small boy in me, but pirates, their escapades, and treasure have always held me in thrall. The mission is hijacked by two criminal interlopers, but when they arrive at the location indicated by Ferris's documents, they find nothing but open ocean. 
The ship is suddenly shaken by tremors, and a steaming volcanic island rises from the water. The crew take a lifeboat to the island, and coughing in the fumes, one man remarks that it looks like the beginning of the world. Looks like the beginning of the world, or the end. As they explore the rocky landscape, they discover storehouses containing chests of treasure and at least one giant crab. What's that? Ferris arrives on the island by seaplane, and a long, boring chase ensues until the island is drawn back down beneath the waves. By depicting land that rises and falls beneath the sea, Port Sinister brings a different logic to the sunken city narrative, one that resembles a geographical phenomenon known as aqua terra. As continental ice sheets have advanced and retreated during the past 120,000 years, the oceans have dropped below and risen above their current levels. The result is that there's a large area of the Earth that's transformed back and forth between land and sea floor. This is Aquaterra, which includes the land bridges that have linked Russia and Alaska, Europe and Britain, as well as land around the coast of Australia. The dramatic transformations of Aquaterra have taken place within the timescale of human history, and remarkably, these changes are archived in legends of sunken cities. From Celtic tales about a time when land on the west coast of England was engulfed, to Australian Aboriginal traditions about coastal inundation on the other side of the globe. So in spite of those cheesy giant crabs, Port Sinister does something pretty amazing. It links the 1950s fascination with sunken cities to narrative traditions dating from the end of the last ice age. Taken as a whole, the Port Royal narratives we've been thinking about in this episode ask us to think in multiple time scales at once to align 1953, 1692, and the last glacial maximum of about 20,000 years ago. This is what I mean by slow adventure. Slow. Slow adventure. These stories also look forward to our own time, when coastal cities are again under threat from flooding, this time by global warming. In the last episode, I talked about the lengthening of forest fire seasons. Another symptom of global warming is an increase in the days of coastal flooding. Coastal flooding warnings from Maryland to Connecticut at this hour, what could be the biggest test since Superstorm Sandy, evacuations underway. ABC's Lindsay Janice on the Jersey Shore in Belgium. Stories about Port Royal, the sunken city that was a hub in the network of colonial commerce, have new relevance at a time when the coastal cities that were brought into being by colonization are now among the most threatened by climate change. 
Changes in sea level and coastal typography pose a risk not only to humans, but to another kind of city beneath the sea, coral reefs. The clicks and snaps that you're hearing now are the sounds of a coral reef, recorded by the sound artist Daniel Blinkhorn. Coral are a persistent, though silent, character in all the Port Royal narratives. I can see coral now. There's great formations of it stretching away from me. In fact, the underwater ruins of Port Royal are often depicted as a drowned human city in the process of becoming coral. Moving toward the nearest one, it's encrusted with coral. It's a building, big one. Coral reefs thrive in shallow water, and when the last ice age ended, sea levels rose, and that left many reefs at a depth where they no longer received enough sunlight. These became what are known as drowned reefs, and they left behind structures that have been called the largest fossils in the world. In other words, there was more than one ghost city beneath the sea at Port Royal. Coral reefs have become important figures for the Anthropocene, in part because they're very sensitive to warming temperatures, which have been causing mass coral bleaching events around the world. This coral reef skirting the Florida Keys is normally darkened by algae, but the water here has been warmer than normal over the last decade, forcing algae out and leaving some patches bleached. I think the coral bleaching is clearly a signal of greenhouse warming. The Great Barrier Reef suffered its worst coral die-off in 2016. One marine scientist declared that this was a sign that we are entering an era when human influences are compressing geological time out of all recognition. Perhaps now we know what the tolling of the underwater church bell in City Beneath the Sea was a startling, eerie symbol of the onset of the Anthropocene. tolling of the underwater bell in the sunken city stands as a signal of community across macro timescales, across species, and across the habitats of air and ocean. The sunken city, like the whispering grove and the roaring forest from previous episodes, is a setting that facilitates the alignment of human and more than human temporal scales of action, adventure, and the longer rhythms of climate and ecosystem. Maybe one way to describe what living in the Anthropocene means is to say that we have unwittingly embarked upon a collective adventure that's dropped us out of our planet's life as a whole. Like most adventures, this one will be rather brief. As one critic notes, The great acceleration that started in the post-war era will only be a brief blip in Earth history. As in most adventures, it will be the decisions that are made in the heated moment of action when the chips are down that will have long-term effects and in the end, that will determine our character.
ESC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich.edu/p/esc. Thanks for listening.